Well, it is a joy and an honor to be here today. My heart is very full. Having known Morgan, I think possibly prior to his conversion, as a young student in the high school ministry, and then to come here and see how the Lord has used him uh, to pastor a church up here in beautiful Fontana. And it's amazing to think how the new birth, which took place in Morgan by the preordained plan of God, would ultimately facilitate him coming and serving here at the church. That's an overwhelming thought to think of. And yet God does that over and over with every new believer, that he is, he is birthing new believers, regenerating new believers in order to do works like what the Lord is doing through Morgan and the leadership at this church. It's a phenomenal concept to think of. Uh, I bring greetings from Tri-City Bible Church down in Vista. We're actually right on the border of Vista and Oceanside and Carlsbad. It's a very difficult place to live, uh, being a mile and a half from the beach, you know, and the humidity is just overwhelming with our windows open at night and no need for air conditioning. So uh, uh, not that I'm boasting, but it's just, I lived in Marietta and it's a dry heat and you need your air conditioner, but uh, living down there is, is a joy, but it's a joy primarily because there's a great church that I'm a part of that preaches the gospel. And uh, if you are ever in the area, come and visit with us, come and worship the Lord Jesus Christ with us on a Sunday. Um, it's a great place to visit and serve. And then you can go to the beach afterwards, okay? Uh, today I want to talk about evangelism. It is near and dear to my heart. I believe God has called me uh, to be an evangelist, not just to be a witness to the lost, but also, according to Ephesians 4, to edify and build up the church in the area of evangelism, encouraging brothers and sisters in Christ to fulfill the mission by which God has called every believer to. And one of the key texts is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I would encourage you to turn there. I have to apologize. I'm preaching from the NASB today, but it's very, very close. I do have my phone up, and the only reason why it's on is so that I can make sure that I don't tweak anything too much as it relates to the different translations, but I think it's pretty close. Before we tackle that text, I want to ask you a question. One of the greatest joys in the Christian life is to be used by God, the creator of the universe, to win the loss to Jesus Christ and to share the gospel and see a sinner give his life to Christ. Okay, I believe it's one of the greatest joys that you can participate in. And my question to you is this. Is the preaching of the gospel and the saving of souls the ultimate purpose of the church? Many of you are going, well, I think the ultimate purpose is the glory of God. And I would agree. It is. The church is designed to give glory to God. But is God most glorified when a sinner turns from sin to receive his son? And should not evangelism, the sharing of Christ, be the believer's purpose every day that they are on this earth? 
I believe it is our purpose, and I do believe it's one of the main purposes for the church collectively. That is to be a light to the glory of Jesus Christ. Before I read this text, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to guide and direct us this morning. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come now and preach your word. I pray that you would impress it on the hearts of those that are here. Lord, if there be anybody in this room that does not know you, I pray that today would be the day they are reconciled with you and that they would become new believers. And for those of us that are believers, I pray that we would not be beaten down, but that we would be encouraged and built up to be lights in this world to your glory. May you uh, bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I have an article from Dr. MacArthur that says this. He says, The supreme way God chose to glorify himself in the realm of humanity was through the redemption of sinful men. Since the fall, God has been drawing, is now drawing, and until the final judgment will continue to draw sinful men back to himself. When sinners are saved, God is glorified because their salvation cost him the death of his own son. Think of that. Think of the, the importance of it to, to God the Father that he'd be willing to sacrifice his son so that you and I who are guilty, wicked sinners could be made right with him. So the giving and the death of his son, which is the immeasurable price his magnanimous grace was willing to pay. It is through participation in that redemptive plan that believers themselves most glorify God. Christ came into the world to bring sinners to himself for his and the Father's glory. As Christ's representatives, you are likewise sent into the world with the same purpose, to bring glory and honor to God. I love his argument now. Pay attention to this. If God's primary, glory, uh, primary purpose for believers was loving fellowship, I've heard people say this, well, the primary purpose of the church is sweet fellowship. It is important, but look what he, listen to what he says. If God's primary purpose for believers was loving fellowship, he would take us immediately to heaven where spiritual fellowship is perfect. Right? Where there's, it's not hindered by sin, there's no disharmony or loneliness. If his primary purpose for us was learning his word, he would also take us immediately to heaven. The only place where we can know his word perfectly. And if his primary purpose for us was to give him praise, he would take us to heaven where praise is perfect and unending. There is only one reason the Lord allows his church to remain on the earth. It is to reach the lost. Just as Christ's only reason for coming to earth was to seek and save the lost. Luke 19, verse 10. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I send you. And so my argument today, or my encouragement today, is, you like my article? Sorry, Morgan. Uh, to encourage you to be active in sharing your faith. Let's look at our text now. We're going to start in verse 18, and we're going to parachute in. And this is not typically the right way to do things, but I don't have the ability nor the time to uh, give you the full context. So we're going to parachute right into 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. And Paul says, Now all these things are from God, 
who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here's the gospel, verse 21. And he made him a new no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jump back to verse 18. It says, now all these things are from God. And now all these things, you got to go back in the text. I don't have time to cover them, but he tackles the idea at the very beginning that our earthly bodies are like a tent and they're decaying. And eventually that, that body, that tent is going to wear away. We're going to die, but we have a building from God because we've been regenerated and we're new Eventually, we're going to be able to live eternally with God in a new body, in a new heavens and new earth. And so the whole point of this text is to show us about the nature of the new birth and regeneration. And it's primarily summed up in verse 17, which is that famous verse that many of you know, which is this. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, uh, things, all things have become new. And the same creative power that God used to create the universe and speak it into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing, that same power is used to take a dead, hard heart, a sinful heart, and make it new and completely transform us and regenerate us and make us into his holy children. That same power is what is used in the process of reconciliation. And we're going to look at this word reconciliation extensively today. It is very, very important. But nevertheless, it is God that regenerates. It's God that makes us new. And now, because we're made new, we are positionally right before God. We will eventually be in heaven with him for all eternity. But he leaves us here on this earth mainly to be lights on his behalf and to be witnesses to his glory. That is why we are here. And this text is going to build and strengthen that argument. It says in verse 18, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Reconciliation. What does that word mean? You can write it down. It's basically, it's simply this. It's enemies who become friends. Reconciliation is the process by which enemies become friends. I have a Kind of a silly illustration. Morgan will appreciate this because you probably remember some of this. But uh, I had a colleague in ministry that we ran student ministries together. I believe he's preached here, Sean Farrell. He's an elder at Faith Bible Church. And we were good friends until Sean chose to do something that brought and put enmity between he and I. And uh, it happened when Jill and I went on a 15-year uh, anniversary to Hawaii, and we had a great time, but we didn't have much money then, so we flew the red eye back home. And unfortunately, because of the time of the year it was in May, there was extreme turbulence, okay, on the flight. And, the, uh, and this is in the middle of the night, we were expecting to get sleep, but the pilot gets on there and says, all right, ladies and gentlemen, you need to keep your seatbelts on, we're gonna reach some bumpy air uh, coming, so. And then he said this, and this really woke me up, he said, flight attendants, please strap in. 
And when you know when those guys got to lock up and get you know, in their seats, you know that it's going to be pretty wild. And it was. It, it felt like hours and hours of just doing this. Jill and I were queasy. We, we couldn't, you know, we were just, our nerves were shot. So then we get back to Marietta. I had to drive all the way from Ontario back, you know, I was wiped out. I get home and I see my property and my property had been completely yarned. Balls of yarn. Like it was like a, it was a, a web of fabric. My whole property was in like cocoon in uh, yarn. From the street light to my trees to my landscape lighting, uh, my basketball hoop, which was portable, was brought into the front and there was yarn. To, and I, I lost it. Like what, I, I just about in rage drove up my driveway, which threw all the yarn, which would have pulled all my landscape lights off the wall had I done it. You know, I'm so glad I didn't. But not only did he yarn the whole front of my house, he got into my, my, uh, my garage, my three-car garage, and completely yarned the inside of it. We are now at war, okay? <laughs> I got to get back. Vengeance is mine, saith John Stead. I got to get back at Sean Farrell. So two months later, I got wind that he and his wife were going to be out of town for a week. So I decided to do the greatest discipleship, boys' discipleship event ever. I got my kids. I said, guys, we're going to go to the Farrell's house. We're not going to do work. We're going to actually have some fun moving furniture. And I didn't tell the boys exactly what was going to take place till we got there, but we spent the better part of a day taking every piece of furniture from downstairs and starting with the middle of his king-size bed. We started stacking furniture on the bed, to the ceiling, all the way to we've maxed out that room completely. All the furniture that we could possibly move was stuffed, stuffed into their bedroom up top. And when they got back, they could bar- you could barely crack the door into their room. And I know that they got back like at 11 at night after their trip. And, and uh, then vengeance became Sean's again. So now we have such enmity, such, you know, this dividing wall. We can have no relationship whatsoever. All we're doing is attacking each other. He decides to do what's called, he calls it Operation Douglas Fir. And this is two weeks after Christmas. He and his discipleship group, along with some dads who own trucks, they went and collected like 30 or 40 dead Christmas trees that were left out of the front of their homes, and they rebuilt the bases to them. And then late at night or very early in the morning, he built Sherwood Forest on my front yard. <laughs> and I had no idea. I got up early one day to go play golf, and I opened the door, and there it was, this forest of dead Christmas trees. <laughs> And uh, so now I want to get back at him, but this would just go on forever and ever. You know what happened? Our wives became mediators. And yes, we had this enmity, and we were not friends at all. We were enemies, and this, I'm being facetious. We still loved each other. But nevertheless, we practically had to make things right, and our wives got us together, and the war ended, and we became reconciled. We became friends. That's a facetious way of describing it, but that's what the idea is. It's two enemies becoming friends. Often the word reconciliation is used between maybe a husband and wife that have been separated, and they're headed for divorce, but then you hear the good news that they had, what? Reconciled. 
which means they come back together and they're back in their marriage and they're back on a good footing moving forward. And the word reconciliation here means exactly that, that between us and God, there is enmity, which is sin, and it separates us. And therefore, that sin, that enmity has to be removed so that we can be back in relationship with God, our creator. Reconciliation between God and man, the sinner, is uniquely different than reconciliation between two humans or two sinful people. You know why? Because with God, there is only one offending party. And it's us. God, who is holy and perfect, does not need to reconcile with you or with me. God is a holy God. He cannot have sin in his presence. And therefore, because he is holy, he, cannot, he, he does not need to be in a relationship with us. Our sin has brought enmity. But yet, oh, the grace of God, to think about this, that God, the creator of the universe, who has every right to punish us as sinners, would so choose to bring us back into a relationship with him. It is us that have sinned. We broke his holy laws. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet because of his great love and his great mercy towards us, he initiates the reconciliation process. It's one of the reasons why I am a Calvinist. It's because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We cannot get ourselves to be made right with God. There's no participation on our part. We're dead. But God comes and initiates, and he brings about the reconciliation. A great parallel passage, i got to have you turn there, is Romans chapter 5. Turn over there quickly, and let's just look at a parallel passage to this idea. The same word is used, uh, reconciliation, in this text. It's a great, great section of Scripture. Verse 8, or I'll start in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, that is powerless, dead in our trespasses, trespasses and sins, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, there it is, we broke God's holy law, therefore there is now enmity between us and God. What happened? Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we were, while we were, what's the word here? This is so good. Enemies. Every non-Christian who does not have a relationship with God is an enemy of God. The Bible says that. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled. There's our word. We were reconciled to God. How? Through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's God that takes an enemy of his and makes us a friend through the work of Jesus Christ. God was never, uh, never hostile towards us. We've been hostile towards him, yet he loves us. Jesus did not die in order to enable God to love sinners, 
but he died because God loves sinners. And it's God that initiates through love to reconcile us. Another great passage, you could write down Colossians 1, 19 through 22. For it was the Father's good pleasure. I love that. God's good pleasure, the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in Christ. We're talking about the deity of the Lord Jesus now. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Somehow, God, who is perfect, is somehow taking on more pleasure when he deals out mercy and grace to sinners. And he's the one that initiates that process. So reconciliation is the sinner being brought into right relationship with God. This is illustrated back in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. Think about this now. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? What's the first thing that they did? They went and made fig leaves. They realized they were naked, right? And by making fig leaves... This is the man's first effort to try to make themselves right with God. Okay? This is the first example of works righteousness. Adam and Eve, they realize they're naked. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves. And what does God do? Adam and Eve are cut off at this point. What does God do? He enters the garden and he starts calling for Adam. Adam, where are you? At at the beginning of the creation of man, right at the fall, you see God initiating, coming down and pursuing man. And then we have the provision, which is the first example of the substitutionary work that's needed on our behalf. And it's God that puts skins on Adam and Eve. Well, where did those skins come from? They came from animals that had to be slaughtered. And it was God that did that work. For Adam and Eve, but it's God that initiates. So there's something in the heart of God by which God desires to have a relationship with guilty, wicked sinners. And he does this in this initiation, this, this, this going after sinners, and he does it through Jesus Christ. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. It was through the life, we always forget that, It's through the righteous life, the 33 years of Christ not sinning and being perfect, his righteous life, his death, and his resurrection. It's through that work, through the person of Jesus Christ, that we can be reconciled. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It says in verse 15, And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. His death removes the sin which alienates us from God. His death removed completely and totally the wall of sin which separated us from the Lord. One commentator says this in a little poem, On him almighty vengeance fell that would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus becomes our hiding place. My question to you is, are you reconciled to God? You, right now, before this holy God, are you right with him today? Or is your sin, has it come between you and God and your relationship with him? Think about this. In reconciling us, 
God showed much patience and mercy and grace. Look at verse 19. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. I want to tackle that right away. In the process of reconciling us, he did not count our trespasses against us. That is a mammoth statement. I think it's pulled from Psalm 130, uh, verse 3, where it says, Oh, Lord, if you should mark our iniquities, if you should mark my iniquities, I cannot stand. I could not stand. That idea of counting and marking is the idea that God, who is just and righteous, has every right to act upon that sin by punishing us eternally for what we have done. And God, in his mercy and patience, doesn't do it. He doesn't count our sins against us. He doesn't mark us. It says in Psalm 1, the wicked will not stand in God's presence. Stop and think right now what it would be like to die and come before a holy God in your sins. Before the holy eyes of God, you have just passed away. Now you're in his presence. Who's going to protect you? Who is going to be there to, to shield you from his holy wrath, which will punish sin? Often I'll take myself there and I just can't imagine what I would do without Christ. This is true. This is real. Every human being, when they pass away, they will stand in the presence of God. And if they have the blood of Jesus covering them, they will stand for all eternity. And if they don't, they will be brought low. Are you right with God today? Have your sins been taken care of, not by you, but by Jesus? They were taken care of at the cross so that we could be reconciled with him. I have just a couple points uh, just you could write down. This is point number one. Don't be worried. That was a long introduction, but it doesn't mean the rest will be long. Number one, okay, the ministry of reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? That word ministry, okay, is the word diakonia, which basically means humble service. So the ministry of reconciliation is we as Christians humbly living our lives in such a way that we point people to Christ. Okay, That's the ministry of our lives. We love Jesus and everything that we do points people to Christ. Uh, in verse, at the end of verse 19 it says also not only the, the ministry of reconciliation but the word of reconciliation. I would say that's the content of the gospel. It's the good news that we dispense in word form so we, we can put it on display, but we have to give the word of reconciliation. It's not just enough to be uh, you know, a good, righteous person. I've been accused of being a Mormon before. You know, uh, really clean-cut life on the outside. And uh, I had to say, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and him alone, uh, and I am a wicked sinner saved by grace. But the ministry of reconciliation is basically the living out of the gospel, and the word of reconciliation is the good news, okay? So we have been given this ministry of bringing forth the gospel, okay? It's the sharing of God's good news. God has given you and I this responsibility 
uh, and it's given to every believer. God has sovereignly ordained, think about this, that the gospel, that the gospel would go forth via human agency. Okay? God has so designed that his precious gospel be brought to other sinners through sinners who've been reconciled. It's an amazing thought. Okay? Romans 10, 13 through 15, I'll just read this. It's a great text. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him on whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of, of good things. God has so ordained that this reconciliation take place through you and I in dispensing the gospel to the lost. Um, look at verse 19. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, this is so good, that God was in Christ reconciling the world. Here's another reason why I'm not a Mormon. If you're Mormon here today, thank you for coming. But here we have a reference to the, the Trinity, the Godhead. Paul has already talked about the Holy Spirit being a down payment in verse 5, who seals our salvation. Now he says that God, the Father, is in Christ. That's a, that's a very important statement. God, how is God the Father in Christ? Well, Paul is emphasizing the Godhead that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the reconciliation of a sinful man. Okay? It says in uh, John 10, 38, Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Whew. Those are mammoth statements. He also says, I and the Father are one, and the Jews wanted to stone him. He's claiming to be Christ. John Calvin says this, Therefore he that hath the Son hath the Father also. For Paul has made use of this expression with this in view, that we may learn to be satisfied with Christ alone, because in him we find also God the Father, as he truly communicates himself to us by Christ. Hence this expression, God was in Christ, is equivalent to this. Whereas God hath withdrawn to a distance from us, he is now drawn near to us. How? Through who? Through Christ. And Christ has become to us the true Emmanuel. God with us. And his coming is God's drawing near to men. That's an amazing statement. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The second point here is that the ministry of reconciliation is a joyful stewardship. It's a joyful stewardship. It's a glorious responsibility for us as believers it's an awesome privilege that God would take the most important truth in all the universe, which is the gospel, and say, Stead, you wicked sinner who I've transformed, here you go. Take this, cherish it, and send it out. Give it away that others might come to know Christ. Notice the word there. It says, and he has committed to us or entrusted to us 
the ministry of reconciliation. This is a responsibility. This is an act of obedience, I believe, and a glorious one in that. To illustrate this, Morgan will remember this. He's gone through this, and every person that's been married or is married has uh, gone through this. 31 years ago, I remember standing in Grace Community Church. I was in the front of the church. I was in a tux. I was 30 pounds lighter than I am today, which basically when my wife would hug me, she would hug herself because she'd just keep going because I was so thin back then. Nevertheless, I'm up front, and uh, there she is. Absolutely gorgeous, beautiful, amazing to see her. I mean, that's a long uh, runway, but her dad is there with her weeping. I'm just kidding. Uh, but anyways, so I'm looking at, and here they come. They walk down, and you have this big statement. We pass over this all the time, but think about it. What does the officiator of the wedding say? What's the first thing he says besides the welcome? Who gives this woman to be married to this man? And there's a quick transaction. But do you understand the weight of that transaction? My father-in-law spent 19 years nurturing, caring, disciplining, protecting, providing for my wife. All that responsibility fell on my father-in-law. And in one quick moment, that's why he was crying. No, I'm just kidding. He takes her hand and puts her hand in mine. What's going on right there? All of that responsibility is now translated to me and given to me. That's kind of the idea of the word committed to. God takes this precious enter enterprise of redemption and he weaves you and I into it and says, I want you guys to be a part of this. Here's the precious gospel. Dispense it out. Give it out. Live it out to my glory. He's committed that to us, to you and I. The most precious truth, God's gospel good news, is to be dispensed and given out to sinners that we know. That's God's design. Verse 20. Therefore, I love this, we have a title. Okay? We have a responsibility. Okay, what's the title of this responsibility in this ministry of reconciliation? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors. Notice that it says we are ambassadors in the present. We are God's ambassadors. That's our calling. And the word ambassador basically means sent out ones. Okay? We are chosen by the king. He, and we know the king. We have a relationship with him. So he takes us and he says, you know what? I want you to go out and you're going to represent me in your life and in the things that you say. So basically what the king says, we say. How the king wants us to live, that's how we live. And it's all done to his glory so that souls would be saved. I know this is kind of a pun, but we go as the king's messenger and we go in his stead. Sorry, Morgan. That's my last name. But we go as a representative of, of Christ. And ambassadors have unique relationships to those who they are sent to. Think about this. It's kind of funny to think about, but God sends humans to reach fellow humans, and his own son, who is God, became a human so that we could be reached. And so basically, all you need to, to be an ambassador is you need to be a human and you need to be saved. 
And now you've got your commission. Now you've got your job. You even have a title. You are an ambassador of the King of Jesus Christ. It's his design. God has so designed you to uniquely minister to the very people that are in your lives, your family, your colleagues, your neighbors. God has uniquely called you to those folks to be his representative to them. So we need to view our coworkers. We need to view our neighbors, our family members as a mission field, as a calling to his glory. We represent the king. So what is the ministry of reconciliation? It's the sharing of the gospel. Who carries it out? We do. The church does. And three, how should it be carried out? This is very important. The ministry of reconciliation should be carried out with great urgency. Great urgency. Notice that he says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is fascinating to me. God is fully sovereign in the saving of, of lost sinners. Okay? And he's preordained it. He has elected all who will come to know him. Yet, he is not bypassing the emotions and the actions of us who are dispensing the gospel. That somehow he can even use our entreatings, our begging, our pleading, our weeping over our children who don't know Christ. God somehow can use even that to bring about reconciliation in people's lives. Sharing the gospel with somebody is the greatest and most important work we can do. We possess the greatest truth in all the universe, but we possess it not to hold on to it and to hoard it, but to pass it on. We receive the good news in our salvation so that we can ration it out. We're saved to share. We aren't reservoirs of God's grace. We are conduits of God's grace. We aren't dams holding back God's mercy and hoarding it. Rather, we are streams of mercy bringing grace and mercy to lost sinners who are hopeless, who don't have a future with God. One of my favorite hymns, there is a fountain that we draw from that is filled with what? Blood from Emmanuel's veins. There is a fountain is filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath its flood and they lose all their guilty stains. My question is though, how can they plunge beneath its flood if they don't know the fountain of God's grace? How can they lose their guilty stains if they don't know where to wash. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. How can they know the, the amazing love and forgiveness of God if we don't take them to the fountain, take them to Christ, and take them to, to the cross? And we should do that with great urgency. God entreats. God is the one that begs. God earnestly calls through us to the sinner, be reconciled to God. I ask this question to you and to myself. I don't want to, be, I don't want to beat you down. I do not want to do that. I want to encourage you. But it should be a part of our lives. When was the last time that we shared with somebody the good news? 
If you haven't recently, it's okay. Just start praying. I'm going to encourage you at the end on how to do it. When was the last time you weeped? And this is one that breaks my heart because there are people that I interact with regularly that I am not broken for them. I have not weeped over them. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. Why should we beseech the sinner? Why should we beg the sinner? Is it not because you are rational creatures, men, not machines? A machine might be compelled to perform functions without persuasion, but the Holy Spirit of God often acts upon the heart of a man by the sound arguments and affectionate entreaties of his servants whom he commissions. I love that. We are to beseech you because your hearts are so hard that you are prone to defy God's power and resist his grace. And that's a Calvinist speaking. How do we beseech? We beseech as when a mother pleads for her child, uh, child's life and when a condemned criminal beseeches the judge to have pity on him. We should be like that in our prayers for the lost. And he says, fly to Jesus, call upon his name, trust him, his word, his work, his goodness, and his grace. This is the way of reconciliation. Bow the knee and kiss the son. I love that about Sir Charles got a couple more concerning him. It's God's joy to bring sinners to salvation. Therefore, it should be our joy as God lives in us, okay? If it's God's joy and it brings him delight and glory, then we should long to be a part of that process. Another idea here, sin, Satan, and hell are real. I don't think we preach that enough. It's real. Every person that dies, if they don't know Jesus Christ, will be lost, separated from God, socially distanced from God forever and ever and ever and ever. In a place of torment. is a terrible, terrible thing to think about, but it's true, and we have to preach it. Sin, Satan, and hell are real, and to turn a sinner away that to God, there's no greater joy. Two, Spurgeon says this in light of that, save some, O Christians, by all means save some from yonder flames and outer darkness and the weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Seek to save some. Let this, as in the case of the apostle, be your great ruling object in life, that by all means you might save some. That's 1 Corinthians 9. The, great, uh, the greatness of Christ, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his compassion, his joy, his grace. There's no greater joy than knowing Jesus. That's our other motivation. Yes, hell is real, but the greatness and the glory of knowing Jesus Christ is also just as real. And to bring people into fellowship with Christ through the cross is amazing. John 1 verse 12, but as many as receive Christ... To them he gave the right to become children of God. Spurgeon also says, Love your fellow men and cry about them if you cannot bring them to Christ. If you cannot save them, you can weep over them. If you cannot give them a drop of water in hell, you can give them your heart's tears while they, while they are still in this body. We should have a compassion and a love for the lost like that. Let me close with some practical applications for you guys all right i don't mean to beat you guys down by by any means oh do 
it's, it's at the five. Okay, sorry, I had it all covered, uh, Morgan. It's just not the way to do it here, I guess. All right, number one, you can write these down. Practical applications. Daily pray for the lost. If you have to have a prayer list, daily pray. Think about the evangelist Paul and all that God did through him. It says in Colossians 4, 3, Paul said, pray for us that a door might be opened. The lost should be on your heart. You should be praying for them daily. Also, during the day, pray on the spot. Learn to pray in the moment. Before you get to work, you're in the, pro in the parking lot. Lord, help me to speak of your truth today. Preach the gospel or share the gospel at work today. If you're going to the gym, don't wear the ear, the ear pods and the big old, you know, shut out the world, uh, these big weighty expensive things on your ears. No, go to the gym, work out, but get to know people. The gym is like church for a lot of people. That's where they go to get their fellowship, but they don't know Christ. They're lost. It's a great little mission field to participate in. Pray before you go to work out. Lord, help me to meet somebody new today and share the gospel with them. When you go to get your hair cut, okay, we all get our hair cut. Uh, some of you women, it's a, quite a process. So you have a good amount of time with a captive audience to share the good news. My haircuts, they're going quicker these days. Uh, they're getting shorter. But nevertheless, you have a, an opportunity even with your barber. So be a prayer warrior for the lost. Number two, use existing means of grace here at the church, at Summit Bible. Sunday mornings. I know the primary purpose of Sunday mornings is edification for believers, but you can bring non-believers here. They will hear the gospel. There was a ministry at a church, Berean Bible, that had a ministry to 20-year-olds called Roaring Twenties. And my, my father-in-law was not a believer. He was newly married. He had three colleagues at his business that opened up their Bibles during lunch. And he started to take interest. And they invited him to the Roaring Twenties bowling event. And my father soon after gets saved, and then my, my mother-in-law gets saved. First-generation believers because of a ministry called the Roaring Twenties. Awesome. So use existing means of grace that exist here at the church. Number three, um, for strangers, people that you don't have relationships with, I recommend using tracks. I really do. And I have a lot of reasons why. But number one, they remind me of why I'm still on the earth. If I have a track in my car, it's like speaking to me. Hey, why am I still here? Hand me out. You know, it's a great opportunity to give a track when you get something at the McDonald's and you can just hand to the, the girl at the window and say, hey, read this on your break. It's got the good news of Jesus in it and it's changed my life. Um, they're great to leave behind with somebody after you share Christ with them to reinforce. I had a friend show up at his house. God had been working in his life. He picked up a track. He read it and got saved on his porch. And to this day, he doesn't even know who left it. But someday he will meet that person in glory. So there are great means for people that don't know Jesus that are strangers. Number four, and this is probably the most important one. This is so, I'll end up two more, but this is so important. Walk away with this. Hold on to this today. Practice obeying the Spirit of God in you when he says speak. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. 
When you are in a conversation with somebody and all of a sudden you are sensing within you to say something. You guys know what I'm talking about. You're pricking your spirit to say something. What is going on right then? It's not Satan because he's, he's not divided. He doesn't want you to open your mouth. And your flesh doesn't want you to open your mouth. And I believe it's the Holy Spirit within you that is saying, open your mouth, share the good news. And you need to start practicing, not suppressing that, but obeying it and just step out and do it. Just step out and do it. I have examples, but I'm not going to get into it. Practice obeying, I believe, the Holy Spirit in you when he says speak. And then fifth, know the gospel and cherish the gospel. Know the gospel, the simplicity of it. Jesus died for our sins. Know it well enough to articulate it and then cherish it. You will share that which you cherish. You will. It will come out of you. Lord, thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity to look at the ministry of reconciliation. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel that's woven all through this. Verse 21, you made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we get the righteousness of Christ, the substitutionary work of Jesus. Thank you so much. Lord, I pray that every, every person in this place, one, would be a true believer. And if they're not, I pray that they would be reconciled with you today. Use one of us to help them, Lord. And if they are reconciled and they are believers, I pray that they would be encouraged, not beat up, but encouraged to share the gospel. I pray for Eddie's class that's coming up, that many would sign up to go take that. Uh, we praise you for Eddie and what a tremendous example he is of a man that lives out the gospel and shares it. And Lord, I pray your blessing on this church, that Summit Bible Church would be a light in this Fontana region, that many would come to faith through the ministry and through the individuals of this body. We love you and thank you, Lord. Amen.